Exponential Trust Times is the unique AI channel of trust that offers an innovative formula of mentoring at scale for youth people from all around the world. I'm Dr. Lobna Kari, Executive AI Strategy Growth Advisor and Digital Transformer for Fortune 500 and 440 for more than two decades and the President of AI Exponential Thinker. Executive Exponential Leader is an innovative podcast that invites C-suite leaders from different countries and sectors, shares with our audience a journey full of incredible experiences, exponential potentials, and insightful vision about the sustainable future and times of exponential technology. And in this special edition today, I am privileged to have two exceptional leaders, Anne-Maurice, entrepreneur, author, speaker, and the executive founder of the Leadership Consortium, and Frances Frey. She is the UPS Foundation Professor of Service Management at Harvard Business School, author, speaker, and advisor for big companies such as Google, Uber, and WeWork, and more. So please help me welcome Anne and Frances to the show. Very excited to have you today with me. Oh, we're so thrilled to be here. Thank really? you. Thank you for inviting us. Delighted. It's our pleasure. So I'm excited about our coming conversation. So though, through our episode, we will talk about one of the most exciting topics to me and to the audience, leadership, culture, and trust. And your recent book, uh, Unleashed the Legitic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. So, it's a uh, long title, but you got through it. Thank you. We didn't ask the question, why this title, right? <laughs> why We're this title? Now. Yeah. But we will start by the topic of leadership. And the first part is you started the book by a dedication to your son and, and a quote. And we are curious to know what was your words to your son and what was this quote and why this quote specially? Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, it's a lovely question. So thank you for asking it. So I'm going to start with the quote, um, and then I'm going to go to the dedication. So the quote is a quote from Toni Morrison, who um, obviously is an extraordinary writer and inspiration for so many. But she said at one point, she was talking to her students at Princeton, and she said, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. That is the quote. And then the dedication is for our sons, Alec and Ben. May the best of you be unbound and may you taste the sacred joy of setting other people free. So they are related, the dedication and the quote. And it's a major theme in the book, which is, what is our obligation to our fellow human beings when we do have some kind of power in situations? And we see this all the time in the workplace. And what we invite people to do at multiple points in the book is to really think about how to create the conditions for other people to thrive, particularly people who may have less power, freedom, authority than you have in the space. And it is our greatest hope for our children that they go out in the world with that same orientation. 
when we asked the boys, when we gave them the book and they each read it, one read it, as Anne said, the other read it, but instead of sacred said scared. It has a, <laughs> it has a very different meaning when that happens. <laughs> there, is some, there is some fear in this leadership thing when you're doing it right. You are out uh, over your skis in many ways. I, I would say the same thing. You tackled one of the hardest topic uh, in, in practice, which is the leadership. Uh, because it's very easy to talk about leadership, right? It's very hard to uh, apply leadership in a daily basis in a professional life, but also in personal life, right? So starting the book by this quote and dedication, it's, it's amazing, especially for young uh, children, which is great. So leadership now is about making others better regarding to who they are. So now how can we identify these leaders in a workplace, especially? Well, may I yeah. start? Yeah. Uh, well, I love what you said a few seconds ago, with, just in passing, which is referencing leadership as a daily experience. And we really think about it that way as a daily practice. You know, we've often historically talked about leaders and non-leaders, you know, these two fixed categories in the world. And what we find is that we all have it in us. Right? <laughs> it is a choice. It is a choice to be of service. And and walk away from the self-orientation that is literally embedded in our genes and shift to an external orientation that is about other people and setting other people up for success. You don't have to have any formal authority to do that. And we believe that every single human walking the planet has it in them to practice leadership, but it's a, it's a very deliberate choice one has to make. But the question is like, how we, we can identify those people in the workplace today? Because it's not about, why I'm asking the question with the team, because yep. it's not about certification, you know, or coaching or being coached, wherever. Uh, I saw a lot of example in my career where people told me after one week, I am a leader. And after two weeks, we feel like the, he's uh, an, the same one, let's say, in, 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 in a way, right? So my question, how we can identify? So, I think the, the way I would um, consider doing it, may I use a sports analogy? Okay, with skepticism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so a U.S. sport is basketball, and there, it's played, there's five on five. A way to... Um, note a leader in basketball is when I'm on the court, do my teammates play better than when I'm off the court? That's a leader. Hey, very, uh, very uh, uh, easy way to understand and to identify it, which is, which is very, very, very good example. Now in the book, you clarify how it's crucial for leaders to focus on others rather than their self to help business grow. How you help executive in a practical way to, to be these leaders and particularly to shift their mindset? Mm -hmm. Well, one analogy that we like to use is um, thinking about leadership less as looking in the mirror. There's a lot of pressure, particularly as you move up in an organization to become very self-distracted. How am I doing? What is my executive my presence? <laughs> How's your hair, which it may be worth considering sometimes. Um, and, we'll to, and, and again, and the, and the further up we get that corporate ladder, it's easier to become more and more distracted. There are more people staring at the choices we're making. There are more people affected by the implications of what we do. What we encourage people to do is spend less time in the mirror 
and more time looking out the window at what other people need in order to be successful. It's a mindset shift. It's simple to say, it's much harder to do. But if you're getting this right, you are spending you know, roughly 80% of the time thinking about other people. But in the same time, I, I, I will be challenged. I, I will be the one who will challenge a little bit because it's, a, uh, it's something that in my daily work, I, I thrive <laughs> in, for me at least. Right, and I know that we are many people in the same conditions. So, coaches today are not helping people to see this new mindset or this right mindset, let's say. And probably I, I didn't remember if it's Frances or you in one of your talk who talk about the fact that probably coaches need to uh, readapt their way to coach uh, in in a way. Uh, so, what do you think about yeah. it? Well, well, we certainly. The reason we wrote the book and called it the unapologetic leaders guide is that we want leaders to be unapologetic about this orientation um we have to say that because it's a newer orientation and i think people that were trained in helping people look in the mirror now simply need to be trained in helping look helping people look out uh, look through the window i see no reason why the coaches of yesterday can't be the coaches of tomorrow but they will want to keep current with these practices okay the topic two of this episode named rebuild trust so in time of uncertainty and unknown in business unfortunately there's a lot of toxic places that are not helping leaders engage in their collaborators now the question how leaders can rebuild trust in a practical way and that this process can be accelerated in a way yeah, so we find that trust can be built best if it's done quickly. So the three pillars of trust are authenticity, logic, and empathy. I'll, I'll say those again, but essentially trust is not a monolithic thing that you, that it's like, it's not a Fabergé egg that once it breaks, it shatters and it's just this one thing. Instead, it's got three levers. You are more likely to trust me if you believe in my authenticity if you can get a sense of the rigor of my logic, and if you sense that I'm centering on you, <clears throat> authenticity, logic, and empathy. <clears throat> and so um, if I am ever putting you in doubt for any of those three things, I won't earn your trust. But what we find is diagnose which of the three are your skeptics concerned about, and then concentrate on that. And the book provides prescriptions on how to overcome all three of them. But here's a mistake we wanna caution against. If you have what we call a empathy wobble, a trust wobble that's in empathy, please don't prescribe the, don't use the prescriptions for logic wobbles. It won't work. So you really need a careful diagnosis so that the prescription will work. And, and we, you talk in the book also about the culture in organization. So how to do a cultural audit and check whether the value that you are celebrating in a way still makes sense or not for the employee? Yeah, well, there's the there's the hard way and the easy way. <laughs> As let's, talk, let's talk about the easy way. Yes, <laughs> so let's talk about the easy way. So we have right. these types of conversations with organizations all the time. And that's really what we encourage people to do is have a dialogue about culture that is very direct. You know, we now live in a moment where culture has been fairly well-defined. People have a 
relatively good understanding of what it is. Trust us that Gen Z is very, very comfortable <laughs> talking about culture. So we suggest starting by having a very, very explicit conversation with your colleagues about the culture that you have collectively created. You know, what's working for people, what's not working for people. Let's think about our hopes and dreams and strategy and the impact we wanna have. What is the mission? And what parts of our culture are aligned with the mission? And what parts are misaligned? And then how would we change it? I mean, a lot of people approach this challenge of culture in thinking that it's somehow immovable. You know, there's this, it's this thing we have to work around and, um, but in fact, it's quite movable. And every day we are either reinforcing it or changing it. And so if we are deliberate about that, it's actually in our experience, it can happen quite quickly to, to transform culture into something that is helpful to the mission rather than hurtful. And, and, and for me, like, who are the responsible to change or to, let's say, to update or upgrade the culture? Well, everyone can be part of the journey. We really push, everyone should be part and of everyone journey. should be for sure. We really encourage people at the top of the hierarchy to take full accountability for what is happening culturally on their watch. You know, the, the C, we work with a lot of CEOs, the CEOs who are most effective, honestly, they think of themselves as chief culture officers as much as chief executive officers. So again, they think of themselves as chief cultures officers as much as chief executive officers. And we definitely encourage that thinking. Um, to Francis's point, as you go on the journey to change culture, we invite you to get everybody in the boat um, because it's it, that can, in and of itself, that can be a powerful experience for everyone to share in accountability for making that culture better. And we think cultures need to be updated at least every five years because so much has changed in the external context. You have different employee base and it's just a good idea to say, is the culture providing the conditions for all of us to thrive? Um, what's holding us back and what should be perhaps added to it? Now we wanna talk about inclusion and diversity as a competitive advantage. Yes. Um, including the ultimate, the, 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 ultimate, ultimate, the ultimate competitive advantage. The ultimate advantage. competitive advantage. Okay, yeah. the ultimate. Inclusion and unlock the potential of others and increase their performance to reach excellence. And you speak a lot about excellence. And I love what you talk about, what you said about this. So how can organization empower truly our differences to unleash the potential of everyone? And is, is it a tough process? It's, um, it's a very hard process until someone gives you the frame of reference and then, you, and then it's an easy process. So once you get the frame, it will all make sense after that. But until then you're like, oh, I'm not sure. So for example, um, if you have a team that's similar to everyone else, you're gonna be able to rely on your instincts for how to manage your team. You can practice the golden rule how you want to be treated is how you should treat others. It makes perfect sense when people are just like you. But the more different people are from you, the less well those techniques are going to work. So the less we can rely on our instincts, the more that people are different. So when we put together a team of difference, we have to be super explicit about how we manage it. If we put it together people that are similar to one another, we don't have to be explicit. It'll all work out just fine. 
when we're explicit about how to manage difference, then we get to get all of the benefits from all of the difference. So what we learn is the least interesting thing about a team where people are different, the least interesting thing about us is what we have in common, even though that's where we spend all our time. The most interesting thing are our unique perspectives. And imagine if, and then if I can take if I can take advantage of all of our unique perspectives and you only get to take advantage of what's in common, I'm going to thump you. <laughs> so that's what that's what it is. It's seeking and celebrating difference and uniqueness turns out to be much more powerful than seeking and celebrating sameness. And so it really is just a flip. We sometimes encourage people to replace the golden rule with the diamond rule or the platinum rule. <laughs> that is treat other people the way they want to be treated, um, not the way you want to be treated because it actually may be quite different. And celebrate. So if you said something that I was going to say, my instinct would be, oh, wow, that's awesome. I would give you a verbal Scooby snack. I would verbally say, good job. Instead, when you say something different than I would say, wow, that was amazing. Then I want to give you the Scooby snack. So it's really, it's, it's seeking and celebrating difference. But in the same time, uh, as I'm the one who challenged here in this podcast, in a, in a daily basis in the, in, the, in, the, in the organization, it's very hard to show up with your unicity. Uh, um, like even the people who are, you know, uh, trying to thrive by, by this authenticity, uh, unfortunately, they have a lack of many aspects, maybe chance, maybe understanding, you know, we can, we can name it in different way, right? So, and the managers, unfortunately, in some ways, it's very complex to treat everyone in a unique, as a unique person, you know? I'm not trying to be the advocate of this. No, way no. Of, but I'm trying, trying mm. to see to say what exists today. Yeah. So how yeah. to encourage those people to show up by their authenticity? Yeah. If you want to treat everybody the same way, make sure that you have everybody that's just like you, first of all. Like if, if that's yes. like the amount of leadership um, time you have is to treat everyone the same way, make them as similar to each other as possible. If you want to aim towards excellence, then you want to attract as much difference as you can. And then regardless of any difference you or I bring to the table, it's not the job of the leader, it's the job of all of us to make sure that we feel safe. It's the job of all of us to make sure we feel welcome. It's the job of all of us to make sure we feel celebrated for our difference. So I think the leader's job is to set the conditions for the best versions of us to come up. But if, if a leader does want everyone, and I have, you know, there are contexts where that's the case. The leader wants to treat everyone the same way. They should really never hire anyone who's different than them. True. I also don't think they're going to perform very well, but. That, that that's a, a different question. I, I love what you, yeah, go, yeah, go ahead, Anne. Yeah, I was gonna say that we, you know, in our collective worldview, we have a little bit of a disagreement over this one. The individual does have some responsibility for bringing their authentic self into the workplace and everyone else around them also has responsibility for creating conditions where that kind of authenticity and uniqueness can show up 
safely and feel welcome and celebrated, valued, cherished. Yeah. Um, it's a it's it's a collective challenge, and it's something that we co-produce together. Um, and again, everybody, you know, from the leader to the colleagues to the individual, shares some about uh, accountability for for that outcome of inclusion. I love what you said about the if you are looking for the excellence, you need to uh, to encourage everyone to be authentic and to be and to show up their unicity. Otherwise, we will be everyone same, right? Similar. So for sure, we will produce the same thing. Yeah, and, we'll and get very as, as idea as everything. Yeah, and, and then so, we can. We're not going to want to work there, and we're easily replaced. So, so in the book, you speak about empathy, authenticity, and compassion, and even like. Back to two years, 2019, I, I, I defined a, um, like a small like formula about disruption, empathy, and trust. Since I'm working in digital transformation and AI, we cannot disrupt if we are not creating an environment that is safe, as you said, where we are trusting each other, right? And, and empowering people to build more and, you know, to show up by their genuity, by, by their idea and everything as unique. So I love what you talk about compassion as well. This individual's asset seems not yet unfortunately recognized today as skills in a competitive professional environment. So how these assets from your perspective can improve productivity and performance? Well, I go back to Francis's concept of thumping <laughs> as a place to start. Um, and we will take anyone's challenge of um, a head-to-head -head matchup between compassionate-free leadership <laughs> and compassionate leadership, right? And, and you know, we, we, we even if we just look over the last you know twelve to fifteen months and this pandemic, and if you yeah. look across countries and and even individual states, there's huge variability in outcomes depending on who was who was in that leadership spot. One thing that you see is leaders that approached this problem with you know these so-called soft skills with, with compassion you know <laughs> with compassion with humility with empathy um actually if you look at the hard data around who lived who got treatment who had access to reliable health care those compassionate leaders performed much better we think that's a very reliable analog for the business world if you want to talk about results and really look at the human beings who are um, at the so-called top of the hierarchies that were outperforming everyone else, you will see a whole lot of compassion there. And I think it's a question to your point of messaging and narrative and telling stories of leadership. This was one of the reasons we wrote the book is to tell a different story of leadership, but we're very comfortable using the same performance mm -hmm. metrics um, to tell that story because in our experience and this is how we got interested in this stuff in our experience the leaders who led with compassion with a commitment to inclusion with empathy with humility uh, are the ones that were able to deliver for their stakeholders much more effectively and consistently than everybody else I'm the one who believe uh, definitely 100% on all of this, what you said. So <laughs> I'm trying to challenge a little bit because on a daily basis, um, when you talk about empathy, uh, at per particularly before COVID-19, right? It was like, oh, empathy in a company, there is no sense, right? But you're right. We saw many leaders today who um, was more compassionate and uh, rewarding the end with the authenticity 
who, who bring more, more valuable results in this hard uh, condition, which is, which is definitely something rewarding to us to say that empathy is very important in our company as well. So now let's, let's talk about culture that value and amplify the strategy. So in, in the book, again, you speak about how leaders should communicate effectively, persuasively, their strategy in their organization as the way to make it known by everyone. So the question is, does everyone in the organization need to understand the strategy? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> so I, I'm talking instead of everyone who will listen to us. Oh my God. <laughs> so here's, um, here's why. Imagine if in a distributed workforce, you and I both are tasked with a decision, with a decision. Um, the chance of our taking the same decision to that is one that's in line with the strategy. If you and I are taking different decisions, we have different interpretations of the strategy. So if you go to Walmart, if everybody has a different understanding of what the strategy is at Walmart, it would be chaos there. It's because everyone understands the trade-offs that are involved in their strategy that it works very well. If you go to Southwest Airlines, every employee top to bottom understands the trade-offs that are being made. So if, and I, we've been to organizations where there were great strategists, but they would have big decks and they would take them out every once in a while and talk to each other about them. And then they would- And talk, talk to, to each other meant talk to other people in the C-suite. Other yeah. people in the C-suite <laughs> and they'd refine them and then they put them back in whatever like virtual bookcase they had. And they didn't bother everyone else with the strategy, but the strategy, my interpretation of the strategy is guiding my behavior every single day. So we all need to understand this trade-offs upon which our, uh, our company is made. Otherwise we're gonna end up not only doing different things, but we're gonna try to be great at too many things. We're gonna end up exhausted and we're probably gonna end up mediocre. It's working. Yeah. Uh, the working definition of leadership that we introduce in the book and we use all the time in the work that we do is that leadership is about empowering other people in your presence and making sure that that impact endures into your absence. So yeah. the major levers of impact that you have in your absence are strategy and culture. Strategy and culture make it very clear what everyone should be doing when the CEO isn't in the room and let's be honest, now more than ever, the CEO is not, not, in, is not in the room. She is nowhere on site, right? <laughs> and so that, that's how people understand choices they, that they're supposed to make is through the culture and through strategy. I love your example of Walmart. I was just, uh, I was just daydreaming over here of how I would misinterpret the Walmart strategy if I were on the Walmart floor. <laughs> <laughs> so it would have to be very clear that I'm not supposed to provide service to everyone who walks through, like okay. hold their hands and help them find You'd what they're looking for. Terrible like, employee. I would Walmart. be a terrible Walmart employee. Um, <laughs> and, and and I think that's um, that's the point. It's it's everyone's got to get the memo if you want that strategy to be alive and well in the moment that it counts, which is when the employee customer interaction happens. And I would almost ask the different question. Imagine if you had two employees that had different understandings of the strategy, would it matter? Of course it would. Yeah. You know why I, why I said, oh my God, uh, 
because from an early my at early my career at the beginning i was i remember myself leading a big program of transformation and when i asked the president of the company uh, who, who provide me this opportunity to lead the project i i asked questions uh, with the um, a full, a full. Uh, I mean, full uh, around the table or the executive. I ask a question: If you clarify the strategy to us, we will make the best choice. Believe me, that day I will never, never forget that day, <laughs> because it was like you are shaking him and saying, "What? She's the youngest one who asked the question. If you clarify the strategy, we will." manage in the right way and take the right decision and at least recommend the right decision right and it was a hard day for, to me at that day <laughs> you were exactly <laughs> right about strategy that's why yes. i said oh my god yeah <laughs> yes because i tell the young dr labna that she was exactly right and, and again, because why I'm asking the question, because I'm listening to a lot of my, you know, colleagues and others, people's um, working in great company as well and others. And for them, when you talk about strategy, they told you, I'm not the one who uh, is aware about all the steps or all the details of the strategy. And it's it, every time it shocked me, because for me, the strategy, it's up to our heads. So we can have all the information about it, right? And it drives us uh, our decision and our recommendation as well in a daily basis. So for me, when someone told me, I cannot see this detail because it's not in my priority. For me, it's not about priority. It's about strategy oh, and, yeah. you know, and the vision and the mission of the company. Once you understand it, you can have the right decision for your department and, and team, whatever, you know. So that's why I said, oh, my God, just yeah. to clarify. <laughs> and that's the heart of empowerment. I mean, if we really talk about empowerment as central to the practice of leadership, it is about empowering your employees to go out and make great decisions in the best interest of the company. And being clear about the strategy is a really essential tool in that transaction. Great. So we have a, um, an innovative uh, um, uh, part in this podcast named Chair the Stage where we open to questions from the audience. And today's, generally we pick up two and today's we pick up three. So the first question is coming from Natalie. She has 47 years and she's from London. And she asks, from your great experiences as coach for executives and helping organizations reaching best performance with uh, their people like Google, Uber and others, how you perceive digital transformation main challenges? Yeah, so um, when we think about change, we think that you have to honor the past, have a clear and compelling change mandate, and a rigorous and optimistic way forward. The biggest challenge that digital transformation has is scaring the pants off of everybody that doesn't understand what digital is and are afraid they're going to get replaced. So we have to find a way to honor the past and the people that thrived in the past and help bring them along. What we can't say is, you're the ones who used to win, step aside, we're now the ones that are gonna win. Yeah, and I think that optimism in the optimistic way forward is- Really necessary, is, is optimism really, for all. There's yeah. gotta be, there's a role for all of us when we center on digital, but 
honestly, some people who talk about digital transformations make it sound like it's a world for 10 of the 10,000 of us. Mm -hmm. And where I want to go in the digital transformation conversation often with companies is one level up. So the digital is the input, right? The digital is a means to an end, but what's the end? And I think that's part of the optimistic way forward yeah. too. What, what is this transformation about? What are we going to achieve? And what is the point we're going to go? We're going to walk through this fire together. Uh, and I think sometimes that is missing from the dialogue. We get a little distracted by the digital part. And we need to focus a little bit more on, well, what's in it for all of us when we get to the other side of this transformation? Okay. Uh, the second question is coming from Patrick, 51 years from New York. I appreciate your talk at Google where you are not simply answering questions, but also trying to better understand questions and concerns to offer the most complete answer. So as a professor at Harvard Business School for decades, what are the main challenges that you face it and how you deal with the ego of students or executives? Well, in the classroom, I find that um, the classroom goes best when the faculty and the executives and the students all show up with humble inquiry. So you can have, in the words of Carol Dweck, either a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. The fixed mindset is, I'm all set, let me benefit you from my knowledge. The growth mindset is, I can't wait to be a better version of myself tomorrow than I am today. So what the job of the faculty is to make sure that they and everyone else has a growth mindset, even if some of them came in with a fixed mindset. A way to do that is to ask a question where reasonable people can disagree, ask someone for their point of view early on, ask someone a follow-up question when they say something that's curious. Why do you think that? Like the curious follow-up will just help open people's mind. And you say, well, you know, so-and-so said it differently than you do. Are you smarter? Like what's, what do you make of the difference? Just like being a little bit playful, but also getting everyone into a growth mindset where we, none of us are here to amortize our knowledge. All of us are here to add to our knowledge. Yeah, I mean, we in the work that we do, we interact with a lot of healthy egos. Um, I think the uh, we have healthy when we have healthy <laughs> egos. So the, the 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 upside of ego is a sense that you can create change, that you can be a catalyst for change, that you matter in the world, that you can take up space, that your point of view is useful to positive change in the world. All those things are are really good and really helpful for the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. I think the, the downside or the shadow side of ego is that you're at risk at making it about you. Yeah. Um, and so the discipline we, we are, are really explicit about introducing to the practice of leadership is again, turning away from the mirror. It's very seductive. <laughs> <laughs> you look great. Um, and looking out that window at, uh, at everyone else in the space and what they need to be successful. So I think if you can balance that, then the ego is welcome to be in the room and part of the ride and even at the wheel, um, as long as you are really bringing everyone else around and orienting that ego towards really the, setting, collective. the collective and setting other people up for success. Yeah. What, um, I, um, I, I will move to the question three uh, after a few, a, few, a few moments, but before one question, additional question comes to my mind when I listen to you, Anne. Um, today's, uh, 
I, there is some statistics that show, unfortunately, that people love being controlled or being guided. And, and they are not looking for, I'm not talking about freedom. We are not in society. I'm talking in professional life. They, they are looking to have everything very processed. Everything is clear task and everything. So for what do you think about this statistic that show up that people appreciate being controlled in a way? I, I mean, I think we are large. I think we contain multitudes, right? Um, and that we have a need for freedom and agency. Um, and we also have a need for security. And for some people, that security can show up in the form of predictability and another human being that is going to take the hit of uncertainty uh, yes. on my I think we um, and that the, the a pack leader, a strong pack leader, can create comfort. Um, I think for many of us in the human species, but there is this parallel need, <laughs> right, for agency and control and power over our own lives and destinies. That I think um, a head-to-head -head matchup, that one is the one that's going to win, or that one is the one that definitely doesn't want to lose, <laughs> right? And so it really needs to be a balance. The I mean, the other statistics we're seeing which I love, I confess, um, <laughs> is, you know, the 50% of people who are planning to leave their jobs in the next six months, the, you know, the 50% of that 50% that wants to try out a whole new industry. I mean, I yeah. think people are coming out. They're coming the, out. <laughs> they're coming out of the house <laughs> and with a really, um, with, with a new relationship to work. I think it's that's going to create uh, it's going to throw a lot of wrenches into a lot of hiring plans, but I think it's ultimately going to be a really positive thing for humanity that people are feeling empowered to find a better and stronger fit between who they are, what they want to contribute and the space they want to show up and make that contribution. The question three is coming from Leila, 17 years from Italy, only 23% of women are executives. For girls and young, and young women who are looking to reach such positions, what would be you, your advice and tips to navigate such journeys? What's your advice to 17-year-old Layla? I'm really excited for 17-year-old Layla because Gen Z <laughs> is going to save us from ourselves. Yes. For sure. <laughs> um, it's a really righteous generation. Um, I think it's... It, introduces a lot of interesting question over whose responsibility is it um, to create the space where Layla can go and be wildly successful. Um, I think uh, it is the responsibility of all the rest of us, right, to, to create that space. I think the future um, for Layla and her peers is uh, in terms of gender and gender identity is going to look really different than the world that the rest of us grew up in. So I think the future, the, the structural change that is going to make this problem go away eventually is, I think, a new relationship with gender and gender categories, where we just stop thinking about this world that's divided between men on one side and women on the other side. And I think when Layla and her peers kind of blow up those categories for us, which it looks like they're doing, I think gender becomes a much less significant variable in people's experience of the workplace um, and everything else. In the meantime, I think we want to create a space where all kinds of difference are welcome. 
Obviously, we haven't done that. If you look at that 23% statistic, it's going to be a combination of the rest of us creating that space for Layla and Layla showing up courageously in those spaces. And that's how we're going to get to that world faster. Now we are pushing the end of this episode. And one of the last topics is about sustainable future. We hear a lot about sustainable future, right? So we would like to learn more about your visions um, about within three questions. The first question is, how looks the future of work? The future of work. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyone who answers that confidently is stating their hypothesis <laughs> as fact. <laughs> we're, um, I can tell you it does not look like the past of work. For That's sure. all we know for sure. Um, yeah. And I think it's uh, the future of work, uh, as long as employees are not captive, is going to uh, look is going to satisfy many more preferences of the employees. So not too long ago, I would get on an airplane and fly from Boston to California for a meeting. I will never in my life do that. And I don't think any company will ever ask an employee to do it. I did it every week. So I think we just used to do really crazy things. Future of work allows us to just take a really sensible look at things. That's the first thing. The second thing is that future of work is not going to be go to a university and learn everything you need to know and then amortize it for the rest of your life. <laughs> like, fix, like grow for two years and then amortize. I think it's gonna be much more of a growth mindset and we're gonna all be learning all the time. I don't think we're all gonna stay in the same task in the same role. I think we're gonna go across industries. I think there's just gonna be a lot more I don't know what the word is, sampling and going deep on and mobility. and mobility and things like that. But we're going to get there. I mean, I look at the, what I'm sure are going to be Saturday Night Live skits of the titans of industry saying, people are going to be in the office five days a week <laughs> and, or four days a week. And just no way, like not the good people. No way. <laughs> the good people won't. No you way. might have people. You might yes. have people. It's not going to be the people you want it's showing up. It's not going to be the good people <laughs> that are going to show up five days a week. So you either, and because there's a lot of nostalgia on the part of senior leaders to go back to how things were, because they had it really good. They were the titans of industry. Only people I hear looking longingly at the past are the people that were at the top of the heap um, then. And it's, um, it's just a moment of forgetting to have empathy, because uh, even some empathetic people are saying some pretty outrageous things. I have a feeling after they spend some time outdoors over the summer, they'll get <laughs> Maybe a little more oxygen to the brain. and they'll get a little more optimistic. <laughs> and, and now, how looks the future of education? Oh, deliciously, deliciously different. So if you look at how much education has innovated in the last year, in my lifetime, I, I can scarcely believe it. We've learned how to teach in different ways. Um, I mean, I, I can teach up to five or 10,000 people at a time just from upstairs. Like we have learned how to be so innovative. Um, we've learned how people like to learn which is in snackable ways. <laughs> I 
do a learn, learn, test, learn, learn. So innovation in education is on fire. It's on fire. And I look forward, I don't know how that's gonna play out, but I look forward to it. I suspect, suspect people will make much more lifetime commitments with universities and education partners. Like it'd be kind of silly to have a four year, two year contractual relationship when what's gonna be required of us is a lifetime of learning. Now, um, I'm sure like me and our board and IIX Foundation think a large number of people at global scale today are reading your book. And we are curious to have like a couple feedbacks from your readers so far. And the last question will be, what, what next as project? What will be uh, uh, for each of you the dream or the target yeah. that you are looking to achieve one day, maybe next year? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's thank you for the question. You know, the interesting thing about writing a book is um, you don't get a ton of feedback beyond the sales numbers, you know, like the, you know, we have all of this technology now, Twitter and, and Instagram and, you know, the, all of these ways where you get immediate feedback on every single idea. Or, yeah. But not on books. But not on books, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, so we have, we have, been surprised in the following sense as we were writing it even sentence by sentence I remember thinking well oh, that's not going to go over well <laughs> like, you know there's going to be some people who don't like hearing that I'm going to write it anyway and kind of bracing myself yeah. for uh but in general we've gotten only positive feedback I think people have really um love to have this artifact that they can touch and feel and think yeah. about and write in the margins and share with other people on their teams. And that's what we really wanted it to be. We love getting feedback. We love when people find us. Uh, and it's, you know, we've been, it's been refreshing and lovely and positive interaction to date. I'm sure uh, someone will find us and tell us they hated it, but uh, they have not been able to find us yet. And the thing we like is when people tell us personally how it has affected them. So nobody has yet told us, I read it, I did this, it didn't work, you stink. We haven't heard any of those yet. Maybe they just didn't feel like writing it. But the, the letters we get, um, this changed how I think, I did this instead, and here was the result. Those can be pretty darn heartfelt, um, which means our intentions made it onto the page and into the minds of the readers, and that's like pretty awesome. So what's next? We really like writing books together. So we're nice. yeah. yeah. So we're we're working on a book now that's really focused on speed and how to accelerate the pace of meaningful impact and meaningful yeah. change. So that's um, that's what we're thinking a lot about now. And what at this point in our careers, we we're excited to get into rooms and spaces and heads that we wouldn't normally find uh, at the Harvard Business School or- so in we're the, going on the, on the virtual road a lot. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna go on the virtual road and see if there are other mediums that will allow us to do that as well. Uh, and then for, from the feedback that I had already about the book is they found people that uh, share with me, it's, it's more, it's a, there's a lot of practical idea and framework and the way that it's presented, it's, it's easy to apply. And this is why, uh, for me, for the feedback that I had and me as well, I found like, if you ask a question, you can find how to deal, to find a solution in a practical way. And this is very interesting when it comes to culture 
leadership and trust which is very important for digital transformation which is my domain right <laughs> we need yeah. all of them together combine it to, to accelerate in a way let's say because it's not about technology it's about people yeah it's about for people sure. it's about human and performance and excellence as you said uh in in your talk thank you very much this thank you so Frances and Anne to be Our with pleasure. us Thank you for this funny and valuable time together. And hopefully, maybe I will be in one of your course. It would be our honor. Yeah. <laughs> Say the word, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank okay. you very much. Take care. Thank Take you. With more than 50,000 young people empowered in time of pandemic and uncertainty, we are grateful to our remarkable guests with exponential experiences and from great organizations such as Amazon, World Economic Forum, Harvard, Google, Berkeley, and more. Thank you to our great audience and keep tuned for this new episode in the unique AI channel of trust by AI Exponential Thinker.